0: Well, good morning again. If uh, you would do me a favor, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to spend some time this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 17 in just a minute. And if you don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're like, well, where's the other guy? He's on sabbatical. So Stephen is gone for the next, uh, well, he won't be preaching for the next six Sundays counting today. Uh, He will be here the sixth Sunday, and uh, so with that in mind, Cody and I will be preaching um, a a six-week sermon series. It's a topical series, so that's going to be very different for you. It's also very different for me, right? Usually, uh, we do what's called expositional preaching. That's a big fancy word for we just take a book of the Bible, and we preach one verse at a time. Uh, If you're Stephen, it's maybe a word at a time. Um, but it's verse by verse, chapter by chapter, straight through a book of the Bible. So this will be a bit different for all of us. It's actually been a little bit harder to prepare a topical sermon than an expositional sermon. Um, but it's, we may bounce around between passages in one given Sunday instead of mainly focusing on one passage. Okay, okay good. I'm glad you like that, Jeff. I think it'll help us. And in times like this, it's helpful to do topical every now and then, because then we get a a bigger picture of what's going on in the Bible at large about a certain topic. And you may even may, may be thinking, well, okay, great. It's a topical series. What is it on? It is, we're calling it Church Basics. You can see that on the screen, Church Basics, right? And you might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound quite as fun and interesting as like something super practical. How do I be a good husband, Um, how do I, uh, you know, be a good parent, or money, Um, all those are great and worthy of, of considering what the Bible says on them, but I also think understanding what the Bible says about what is a church is essential to who we are. It will change, if we rightly understand, it will change what we do and how we interact with one another, and so in a time where our culture is perhaps thinking, or even some Christians are thinking that the church is less relevant or less important because we can watch live streams pretty much any time we want. We can pull up sermons of our favorite preacher any day of the week. You might think, well, a topic on the church is not quite as important because there are so many in our, our land who will say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. And I would say for all of those reasons are exactly why we should think about what is the church because if we don't understand it rightly we may be prone to some errors and so with that in mind let's pray. Father we come to you now and we ask for your help we ask for your help to uh, rightly understand what is the church over the coming weeks we'll dive into that even starting today and so we want your help for that. Give us ears to hear your truth from your word, from you, and even be with me now as I I speak, that that which is true would come out. And so we ask for your help today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's even just start our thinking about the church with just a a thought exercise. And so I'll ask you a question. It's rhetorical, so don't answer out loud, okay? Okay. But when you think about this word, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Church. So when you hear the word church, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? And even with that word or thoughts that first come to mind, it probably carries some feeling, some emotions with it, right? You may have warm feelings of, Love because you've been cared for well by the church. You may have uh, uh, an affection for the church because others have sacrificed for you and you have deep friendships in a church. But that's not the case for everybody. Sometimes people have anger and frustration when they think about the church because they've been rejected or failed by leadership. Or they feel like they've been rejected by others in the church. When it should be one of the most welcoming places. And Charles Spurgeon, I think his words are helpful for us even to consider the church. And even though he was a pastor, it doesn't mean he was blind to uh, the truth about the church. And so listen to this. He says, if I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect. I should have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one. I would have spoiled it. For it would not have been perfect after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. So I wonder if you could echo the same thing. Like, I see the church is imperfect. But even as imperfect as she is, as we are, it is still a sweet and dear place To be gathered with God's people. And so we must understand what the church is. Because if we don't, we may be prone to errors. We could uh, turn this into a place where we bring people in and bring people out as quickly as we can. And do things just to grow the church. Just to get more people in. And if we misunderstand the church, then we could be prone to just saying, well, we're just providing spiritual services or spiritual experiences to help people on their way this week. Or if we misunderstand the church, then we could also be prone to promoting political agendas instead of promoting God and our great Savior. And so my prayer, even as just I've been preparing this week and Cody and I have been planning this series, is for God to help us rightly understand the church for us to see the importance of the church and to see God's love for the church, and as we do that, it would help us love the church not just in word, because I trust all of you here would at least in word say I love the church, but in our actions that it would change the way that we live. So your outline for today, you can see there's just two main points: uh, the the universal church. We will look at that briefly. Just so you know, if you think, man, we got through the first one, the second one's going to be like that, we're going to spend far less time on the universal church than the local church, okay? So if we spend five, seven minutes on the universal church, it's not going to be only five or seven minutes on the local church. But let's think about the universal church. If we were to define the universal church in just a short sentence, we could say it's all of God's people from across all the ages. Right, So God's always been creating a people for himself since the beginning of time. Think about creation. He creates Adam and Eve, and he creates them in a right relationship with him that they would be worshipers of God. They're given this mandate to go and fill the earth with worshipers. That is, multiply and fill the earth. But we know that they don't fully obey. They disobey the Lord, and so now... God calls forth and, and, and is calling out his people by protecting Noah. And then calls forth Abraham. He does this by calling him and then through Abraham becomes the nation of Israel. And we know that Israel doesn't actually fulfill God's law and obey his word either. Even as God's trying to create a, a people out of Israel. They fail. And then if you keep on reading the Bible, you see that he sends Christ. That is the word, Jesus, who perfectly fulfills the law, who perfectly images God the Father. So much so that even in John 14, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then after the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes, right? He empowers the apostles in their proclamation of the word. And what happens? The church is formed. The word goes out and people turn to Jesus and they gather together in local congregations. So the, the church is God's people who are supposed to image the son. We even read in Romans eight twenty nine, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is still calling out a people to be created in the image of His Son that we would image forth God to our world. This is what we're calling the universal church. God's people from across all of time, everywhere. And I don't know if you've ever seen, gotten maybe even glimpses of this. I've I've most seen it, or I've seen it most prominent when I've gone overseas, when I've gone to churches, when if you've ever taken a mission trip to Ghana or Guatemala and you've worshiped with other believers, people who don't look like you, who even sing in a different language, speak in a different language, you hear just this wonderful, beautiful picture. You're reminded that the gospel isn't just for middle class America. That God is, in all places, creating a people for himself. Probably one of the most profound times I've seen this is when my family went to China two and a half years ago. It was one Sunday morning. Um, We were able to go. It's an international church. So if you're not familiar with that, uh, at least in China, the way it works is um, native Chinese can't go to international churches. Um, They have to go to their own churches. But internationals who are living there can go and worship there. And so we went, and we see people from Africa, and other parts of Asia, and South America, and Europe, all there worshiping, people that don't look like red-headed white people from America, <laughs> right? And it's beautiful, 200-plus people worshiping, crying out to their God. We even, at least for a little bit, felt like strangers. We felt a little bit out of place, but then they're so welcoming and friendly, and Their worship is so responsive that there's just this instant bond with these people that we'd never met. Because they love Christ. And it's amazing. It it blows my mind, the majesty of our Lord who's saving a people, not just here, but across the world. He's making himself known. And so the, the church is to be a people ...who are glorifying God forever. A people who are making known this great God... and ...because He's the God of the nations, right? He's, he's creating for Himself a people who will sing His praises... ...a people from Ghana and Nigeria and Tanzania... ...people from France and Germany and Denmark... ...people from China and North Korea and India... ...people from Iran and Af- Afghanistan and Israel... ...people from Canada and Costa Rica and Guatemala... People from every tribe and tongue and language. And what do we see in Revelation? One day these people will be worshipping the king forever, singing his praises. But he doesn't just save us and bring us into one place right now. God saves us and then he typically leaves us where we are and we we come together in local congregations. right? So now that we've consider the universal church church let's now consider the local church so if you would read with me follow along Ephesians 2 starting in verse 17 and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father This local church, you could call it maybe a local outpost of the universal church. This is typically what we see uh, described in the New Testament is the local church. But you could even think of it as the, the, the local church functions in a way as an embassy of this new society God's creating through Christ. Just as the U.S. Embassy in London is uh, is considered a part of U.S. sovereign territory overseas, so the local church is a small part of the heavenly territory in this world. So if we were to describe the, or, or define the local church in one sentence, don't, don't worry about trying to write this down, okay? It's kind of wordy, but we'll, we're not going to dive into all of it this week. Over the next five weeks, we're going t- to, to flesh this out. So, the local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. I told you it was wordy, okay? So we're just today, we're going to focus on the very first part. A local church is a group of Christians who gather regularly in the name of Christ. So the first thing that we should notice, even from this passage, is that the church is not a place, but the church is a people. The New Testament uses metaphors, different metaphors to help us understand what the church is. And one pastor describes the church. um, It it really is his description of the church before he came to know Christ. And I wonder if it identifies or, or maybe even hits home with how some people treat the church. He says on the surface, the church is a lot like my old tennis club. People meeting together because of shared interest, running occasional events to raise the profile in the wider community, trying to drum up more members, having meetings with minutes and secretaries, and getting caught up in the minutiae of it all to a degree that would baffle most outsiders. Right? He's, he's describing his old tennis club he was a part of. And I think it's easy sometimes for us to think of the church like a club. It's something where we just have a mere interest together and, and, and I may come so long as I don't have anything else that's taking up my time that week. But is that what the church really is? Some of the New Testament metaphors we see are that the church is the bride of Christ. It's the body of Christ. And our passage here in verse 19, it gives us two metaphors that we are fellow citizens with the saints, that we're members of a holy, uh, sorry, we're members of the household of God. And then verse 21 tells us that we're a holy temple. So the church, it's a people. It's a people that God is creating for himself that are to be devoted to him. And sometimes I think we may be tempted to, to relegate church to being a club. Or maybe we even use words that uh, don't accurately reflect what we really think about the church. Sometimes we may speak of the church as being a place. Right when, I was, uh, when Jessica and I were thinking about going to Boston to help plant a church, a few families took a trip up there to scout the area just to get to know the city better. And as we're driving through Boston, there are these beautiful church buildings. Some of them really big, some of them smaller. And my heart just begins to break as we drive by. Because many, not all, but many of them have signs out front. And instead of it saying the name of a church, it says for sale and then luxury condos or luxury apartments. And these buildings had been converted into places for whoever is the highest bidder to buy and and be able to live there. And then as we kept seeing these old church buildings, it struck me like, okay, there probably should be a bit of brokenness, but not because a building's been turned into a place for people to live, but because of what the building represents. It represents a, a place where a people used to gather who used to be this local outpost representing Christ to the world and encouraging one another's faith. And so it grieved me that people, a people who were once delighting in Christ now were no longer there. Which just makes me very glad and thankful for this church. For 132 years, God has sustained the people called Hamilton Baptist Church. It's a blessing. I don't know if you've thought about that before, but the generations of people who have come before us, who have been faithful to tell the next generation about Jesus, so that they could build them up, mature them, and then them tell the next generation, so that you and I are sitting here today, we have a people who call themselves Hamilton Baptist Church. That we can encourage one another's faith. Pursue Christ together. But then not even just that. Thinking about how great and good God has been. How kind he's been to us recently. Just adding people to our number. And that on August 22nd. We have the joy of sending some of you out. We love you but we want to send you out. For those who live in Lovettsville, We want you to go to Lovettsville so that there's a Bible-preaching, gospel-believing people in Lovettsville that you can invite your friends and your neighbors, your family, to see and to hear and experience the great God that we worship. God is always and always has been creating people for himself. One of the most powerful and Probably the most used metaphor for God's people in the Bible is familial type language, right? And it doesn't say the church is like a family. The Bible says the church is family. So we see that the local church, the church is not a place, but it's a people. And these people are family. Verse 18 even says, For through him, we both, that is, uh, those who are near and those who are far, referring to Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. Right? This is familial language. Other parts in the New Testament, if we were to just do a quick survey, Matthew chapter 12, we see Jesus stretching out his hand toward his disciples. He said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of the Father of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We see in John chapter 1 that we are adopted as sons and daughters. John chapter 20, Jesus speaking to Mary Magdalene. He says, I'm ascending to my Father, to my father and your Father, to my God and your God. Every single one of Paul's 13 letters begins as he addresses the church. He says, God is our Father. Just a couple of verses after what Tom read for us a few minutes ago, Ephesians 3.14, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. And then in 2 Corinthians 6.18, we see it says, I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There's familial language, right? It's not just that we show up in one place together, but we are a family. We're sons and daughters of King Jesus. And D.A. Carson says, in the, Roman world of the, in the Roman world of the day, to be a member of a household meant refuge and protection. It also meant identity and gave the security that comes with a sense of belonging. So to be a member of a family, it brought a sense of identity. It changes who you are. God, when he makes us his children, completely changes who we are. He takes us from being in the domain of darkness and places us into the kingdom of light. He makes those who were once slaves to sin, he takes them and makes them children of light. And so I don't know if if you maybe have heard this so often that it might be a little hard sometimes to understand how dire your situation is. Perhaps it's like you're in a scary movie, right? And in the scary movie, they never hear the music that's coming that lets them know, hey, something bad's about to happen, right? You and I watching are like, no, you don't run into the empty garage by yourself. That's going to be bad for you, right? The music tells us that. I wonder if sometimes, at least before Christ, it was like that for us. Where we were in such a bad situation, we didn't even realize how bad it was. Until God, through the Spirit, brings us to life and enables us to hear the good news of the gospel. Right? He turns enemies into children. He turns his foes into family. Let me give it to you in different terms. Just to help you see the scandal. Scandal. It would be like the Jews welcoming Nazi Germany soldiers into their home. Or Americans adopting Osama bin Laden. Or Nigerian Christians adopting people from Boko Haram. Or like Christians in North Korea. Or Afghanistan or Somalia or Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran or India. Welcoming their persecutors into their families. And you might be cringing. Well, that's a bit extreme, Josh. I don't know that it would be like that. I think it would be. Because God is perfect. And he takes enemies and makes them children. He's never sinned. But we who are sinful, we balk even at the idea of loving those who consistently sin against us. We don't know the depths of other people's sin, yet we still don't want to love those who we deem who are unlovable. We are boastful glory stealers, yet when others boast in front of us, we're turned off by their arrogance. But God, the perfect and holy God, demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, his enemies. That is what's happening when God takes enemies and makes them children. So yes, God took you, you sinful, me, sinful, rebellious, glory stealer, and said, I will love you, you will belong to me, and I will forgive your rebellion and your sin. I will repay your debt because it's too large for you to pay. You could never repay it. I'll absorb the penalty that you deserve in Christ. And so God has utterly changed our identity. He's made us sons and daughters. We have the privilege of calling him father. And so even as he's changed us. Even as we've looked at Colossians the last few weeks from Pastor Stephen. right? He, he's reminded us week after week. It's, it, it's, it starts with who we are. It starts with God changing who we are and then therefore now because we have been changed, we're new creations. Now we therefore go and live godly lives. And so because God has changed who you are, given you a new identity, we are now to forsake sin. Listen to Hebrews 12.4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. When I even read this, it's like, it's like a smack in the face, right? We aim to resist sin. Yet the writer of Hebrews has said, you better keep on because you've not even gotten to the point of shedding your blood yet. So I even wonder if, that, if it's written to a people who are struggling to forsake sin. And instead of saying, hey, you sinner, quit sinning, the very next verse makes an appeal to who they are. Hebrews 12, 5 says, you're children of God, your sons and daughters. And so you who are now a son and daughter of the king, let us forsake sin because we are different people. We're his family. And so when you are broken by your sin, when you're aching from your shame and your guilt, instead of thinking I'm an addict or I'm a, a, a... a pornographer, or you name whatever it is. I'm one who is a gossiper. Instead, hear the words of God who says, no, you're my son. No, you're my daughter. And he pulls you close and says, you have a new identity. So live in that new identity. I've made you mine. And this familial language, it's used to describe the church, right? It's that we are a people, And that we're God's children. But it doesn't stop there. It goes even further into familial language. He doesn't just adopt you and leave you to live life by yourself as a son of God. He takes you and places you in a family. Your brothers and sisters, right? Verse 19, it even says, members of the household of God. So God takes his children and gives them brothers and sisters. This is a kindness to us, a a goodness of God given to us, right? Uh, You probably know, I don't know if it's actually, you know, in a medical field called this, but the one, the only child syndrome, you know, I'm talking about the stereotype, the only child, they're selfish and they don't share and they, you know, lash out and, and whatever else, they're absorbed in themselves, they're bossy. No one wants to be like that only child. And God doesn't want us to remain in our sin. He gives us, brothers and sisters, a family to help work out sin in us. He has given us a people that we might live in community with one another. Again, I find Hebrews very helpful on why he's given us a family. Brothers and sisters, Hebrews 10 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for... He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're given a family. We're given a family. It even tells us here, it says, let us. So that ought to be even more emphasis. Like, God has not created you a new creation as his son or daughter. To leave you by yourself. The instruction of Hebrews 10 is let us. So we need to be with other believers. For the purpose that we could hold fast the confession of our faith. So that we could consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And that we could encourage one another. And how do we do that? He told us by not neglecting to meet together. So let this monthly or this weekly gathering be important to you. Let the gathering of God's people be important. Set it aside. Don't let anything invade that. Why? Because there's a danger. Right? it's God's given us brothers and sisters to help one another not fall away from Jesus. And you might be saying, well, okay, good, but. Isn't it true also that once a Christian saved, they're always saved? And I would say, well, yes, absolutely, that is true. But how do you think that's accomplished? I think it's through the meeting with one another to worship our God, to encourage one another. God uses ordinary means, that is, his people, to accomplish extraordinary things, that is, Saving people, preaching the gospel to him, reviving them, and keeping them in relationship with him. So you and I have a responsibility. It's a wonderful but yet high calling, right? I have the privilege, not because I'm your pastor or one of your pastors, but because I'm a church member with you. I have a responsibility to help you pursue Jesus. You have a responsibility to help the people around you follow Jesus and to help me follow Jesus. And we are to do this, not just to help one another not fall away, but also to motivate one another. To encourage, hey, you need to be about doing good works for our king. To encourage one another, to sacrifice for one another. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So it begins with God. He's the one who has showed us love, right? He did it by sending Christ to lay down his life. And now we too also ought to be laying our lives down for others. So if that's true, that's what we're called to, it's impossible for us to live the Christian life by ourselves. We need one another. So God in his infinite wisdom has given us a family. A people to encourage us, to help motivate us, to help us hold fast to our confession. So God's always been creating this people for himself, right? He's made us a family. He's adopted us, given us brothers and sisters. And as his children, we are to now listen to the voice of our father. So the, fam- the church is a family that listens to the voice of our father. Verse 17 says, And he, Christ, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Right? So the Father sends the Son to preach. And then verse 20, That this church, the people of God, are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the foundation of this building or the foundation of the church is what the apostles and the prophets have taught. That is, they've taught Christ. He is the one that's preached. That is our foundation. In an article from, uh, it's been a while ago, a long time ago for some of you, uh, before you were even born, in fact, March of 1993, there was an article titled Mainline Churches, The Real Reason for Decline. And so in this article they're talking about different reasons that have been proposed why mainline churches, their attendance, their membership is declining. And they list three or four. And then they get to what they think is the single best. They say, in our study, the single best predictor of church participation turned out to be belief. Orthodox Christian belief. And especially the teaching that a person can be saved only through Jesus Christ. So what is it that keeps the church alive? What is it that sustains the church? It's God. It's him sending Christ, the good news of the gospel. So the word of God must be our authority. It's what should shape us. It's what uh, what we should be proclaiming and believing and living. And so I want to ask you, do you believe the word of God has power? I hope you do, because that's why week in and week out, we read the word, we preach the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, and we preach it. That is what will sustain this church. A people set apart by God, his family, brothers and sisters coming together and feasting on the word of God. That is what sustains us, what nourishes us. That's even why this summer, our youth, we're just spending time weekly reading the word. And then we come together to discuss it. It's nothing fancy, right? But why? It's because, and I've told the youth this, they're probably tired of hearing it by now, but we do the things that we love. And we usually enjoy and love the things that we're good at. And so if that's true, if we do the things that we're typically good at, Because we enjoy them. I want to help our youth enjoy reading God's word. I want to help them get good at reading God's word. Not so they can check a box and say, yeah, I'm a good Christian little boy or good Christian teenager because I've read my Bible. It's because I want them to understand God's word. Feel like they can do it reasonably well and understand their great God. That they might delight in him. So the word isn't just for you on a Sunday morning. The word is for each one of us every single day that it would direct our lives. And so so the success of our church, our faithfulness to God is bound up in the success of us hearing God through his word and obeying him through his word. Every church that has ever existed has risen or fallen on hearing, believing, and living the word of God. So we have a great responsibility as a church. You should protect the preaching of God's word. You should be listening intently to the preaching of God's word and measuring everything that's said from this pulpit, even today, by the measure of God's word. And if you don't hear God's word being proclaimed, you need to speak up. Because HBC, Hamilton Baptist Church, will rise and will fall based on whether or not we obey God's word. And by God's grace, I think we are. I think he's growing us. He's helping us flourish as we delight in him. And so may the world see the beauty of our great God as we live for him. This local church, it's an outpost, a small picture of the universal church. It's the, 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 the local church is the visible church. And so we're a people who has God as their father. We're a people who have brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are a people who must diligently obey God our Father. And so may, by God's grace, help us do that well. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We ask that until Christ returns for his people, that whoever stands behind this pulpit would faithfully proclaim your word. That you would sustain Hamilton Baptist Church for generations to come. That you would do a good work in and through us, not so that we can say, look at us, but so that we can say, look at our great God, that we might be able to see the lost come to know Christ and churches planted because we love you, our Father. But we also know that you have not saved us to live Christianity and life alone. Our Savior even says that the world will know that we belong to you by our love for one another. And so we ask that as we delight in you, our Father, that you would help us to not just enjoy the company of one another, but that we would delight to be together. That it would be a great joy, a highlight of our week, to gather and sing our praises to you, and then even meet with one another throughout the week, living life together, helping one another pursue Christ together. We need your help for this. And it's in our our Savior's name. Amen.